All right, hi everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. Uh, it's also, you know, we kind of haven't, I haven't put this in our intro in a while, but it's like, you know, it's a reunion podcast. Uh, we all did this like 10 years ago, and it's now 11 years ago, now that we're in 2019, and uh, just kind of going back, revisiting the show from a an older and wiser perspective. <laughs> <laughs> so uh with me tonight i have uh two co-hosts i first have casey hi <laughs> and next i have Kristen. hello all right so how are you guys doing how's everything been going since we last talked good very good not sick anymore hooray no pentapox <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? You got I got vaccinated like... against the pentapox. Yeah, you know. Nice. <laughs> mini outbreak on them. <laughs> oh, let me tell you what. I was, I'm always so nervous. So it was like one of my rare days off. And uh, so we went to go visit the National Zoo today. And, you know, I'm used to being around kids to the point where I almost kind of ignore oh. a lot of people and how sick they are. But <laughs> once I'm out and about on my own and I'm on the other side, like there's no barrier between me and the guests and like, the kids around me sneeze. It's like, oh, God, I'm going to get the plague. It's <laughs> <laughs> like in the back of my mind all day, like, oh, God, there is no barrier between me and other people like there is at the aquarium. I'm going yeah, to get something. <laughs> Seriously, I know Abigail and I were uh, we went down to Florida for vacation and we were like riding the plane back and there were just people like coughing and wheezing and children like snotty and it was just like, oh, God, we have no chance. We're in an insulated (laughs) tube. And lo and behold, the next day we got sick and we've been sick like all week. (laughs) Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so for this episode, uh, we are doing, and this is basically going back and we're doing an episode uh, kind of recap. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about Return to Amashu, uh, which is episode three from Book Two Earth. Um, uh, you know, I was thinking about like what episodes to kind of go back to and thinking about uh, where we've kind of been with things. And, you know, one of the first episodes we did was on uh, Boomy. So I was like, you know, I think we should revisit this episode, kind of uh, go into it. And it's got a lot to love. We got Boomy, we got Azula, May, and Ty Lee, and we've got little cute, like, avatar animals. What, what is not to love in this episode? Tom, <laughs> <laughs> Tom. Yes. Um, <laughs> So the official uh, just kind of recap or, you know, kind of a log line of this is finding the city of Aang's old friend, King Bumi, captured by the Fire Nation, the heroes hatch a plan to rescue Aang's earthbending teacher, while Azula gathers two old friends to help her hunt the Avatar. Um, this episode was written by Elizabeth Welchie has uh, and directed by Ethan Spaulding. Um and we kind of had two storylines going on in this episode as kind of we were reading uh, off in that intro is obviously we have Aang, Katara, and Sokka returning to Omashu so Aang can learn earthbending from Bumi. Um, and then Azula recruiting Tylee and May to hunt down the Avatar. Um, so as we're kind of discussing through this episode and going through it, I some of the things we want to kind of focus on and think about are the these ideas of revisiting um, an established character like Bumi and an established place like Omashu, uh, seeing the direct impact of war and really kind of seeing a more dangerous calculating foe against uh, Team Avatar. 
So, uh, but yeah. Um, so before we even get started, uh, just any like kind of experiences and initial thoughts of when you were kind of revisiting this episode or kind of looking back on this? I always enjoy the episode because it's, you know, I, I know as they go through the books, they slowly unravel things, but for the most part, like the world's pretty well established. And so, um, with any series as it progresses, you always assume like, okay, I have an established baseline. There's, you know, aside from plot twist, there's not a whole lot of big things left, but throughout the series, they continue to delve deeper into things. And so there is always something new to learn. And I really like the end of the episode when Boomy is talking about the Jings, that is always mm-hmm. my favorite part uh, about it because it, it it's, you know, it's just one more little piece of, of enriching details to the world. And that is by far, aside from the Pentapox, one of my favorite parts in this episode is uh, <laughs> is that that broadening of the world. Very cool. What about you, yeah. Casey? Well, it's funny. And to, to kind of go off of that, too, it just going back to it and, and watching it and seeing it again um, and thinking that, like, again, when they when you see Omashu the first time, um, I think with, even with King Boomy, I don't remember initially when I saw it 10 years ago, my initial reaction to it, I, am I going to see these guys again? I feel like I was going to revisit that, at least that character. So then I remember when this episode came out, I was like, oh, okay. So they haven't forgotten. So they're really kind of keeping this world very, um, open and very, um, three-dimensional, uh, in the sense that, like, it's not, like, so linear where it's just, like, you go through, here's a, you know, here's an episode, and now we're done with this, and done with this character, and we're going to move on and finish the series. It kind of, like, there's a, again, that, that revisiting, literally revisiting an old town and seeing how things have changed because of the situation um, that's going on in the whole series because of the Fire Nation. So it was cool to, like, see how it was before and how it's after and the consequences of that and then how the characters both boomy and and ang um old friends how they both react to that very differently too so it's it's that i thought was really really cool about that episode yeah um and of course at the end of the previous episode um cave of two lovers it kind of is uh it bookends with uh you know ang katara and Sokka walking up a hill and ang has this line where he's like now i present to you the earth kingdom city of oh no and yeah. you realize it's covered in Fire Nation, you know, regalia and smoke is rising and there are metal bridges connecting to the city. And that's where we kind of leave. And then the this episode kind of picks up immediately into that. Um, and, and what I want to first talk about is, again, this idea that and they kind of mention it in this part of Aang saying, I always like thought Omashu was kind of untouchable or it was actually I believe it was uh, Katara who said that. Um, and I don't know when you guys originally saw that, I mean, how big of a surprise do you remember that being for you? I think that honestly to see, because we haven't seen bossing say yet. You know, we haven't seen the, 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 the main capital, but Omashu was super impressive. What King Boomy did with that, especially with like all the mail shoots. And it was like a very like, um, advanced city. So to see that with the banners on it and that they had taken over, I can, my brain goes into, well, two modes. It goes, well, I understand why. And then the other, other, the other part of my brain goes, well, that sucks because <laughs> it, it seems like a pretty, like, you know, again, they're very, seems like a well 
like balanced city, um, very um, just like just very high functioning. And now they've and been formidable too. I mean, it's like it's literally yeah. like on an earthen island surrounded by like <laughs> a canyon. <laughs> Walls, it's yeah, not- and I was speaking on the whole I like island thing was when I first saw that the city had been taking over, my first thought was how did they even get there? Because yeah. you can imagine the earthbenders could have easily collapsed their own bridges to the city and essentially created, you know, a cliff moat. But then, you know, you backtrack in your mind to uh, when we first see the um, the inventor and the air temple where he made those war balloons and, you know, things start to connect on you know, how devastating the war is as these new technologies are being used by the Fire Nation and making it harder and harder for cities like Omashu to remain defensible if the enemy has that air power. And I almost wonder how long ago it had been taken over too, because while the initial reaction makes you feel like it was taken over recently with like, you know, you mentioned the smoke and stuff rising from the city. Um, Typically in a war, when you take over a city... You know, usually you leave somebody in the military in in charge, but we meet a governor, a bureaucrat in charge of the city. And so it it almost gives the sense that it had actually been taken over possibly a little while ago and a pseudo government has already been established in the city. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the resistance had built up at that point and the people were trying to, like, escape. So it's it's we don't really learn the whole all the details about the siege and everything, how long ago it happened, how quickly it happened. But, you know, it does give a sense that they might have come very quickly with those airships after the airships were gotten by them. Yeah. The, uh, the well, I don't even know if they had the airships at this time, because, I mean, e- even though the inventor was there, I, it kind of felt like the airships were really used as kind of like a trump card for day of black sun of like, you guys think that we have all of this stuff. And then when the airships rise up, it's like this, okay, we have way more than you even can think about, but it's still impressive if they took it for without them. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, it still goes into the fact, like what you were saying is, you know, the fire nation has just such a technological advantage. And, you know, when you look at just war in general, when you have one civilization, that is more technologically advanced. I mean, it's, they just like normal defenses and just ways of thwarting off invaders or sieges or anything suddenly become a moot point because they just can circumvent it so much easier without expending as many resources or as many, you know, men to, you know, take it. Mm. Um, So with that, you know, obviously we see this intro part where they're, showing it under siege and Sokka and Katara are like, Hey, we should let's get moving. Like, you know, this, this sucks, but Aang wants to go in because he wants to help his friend. Um, and again, it's Aang's like, that is his nature, his code. He wants to, he can't just abandon. And I, I mean, that part really struck me this time too. It's like, he literally has no one from his time besides King Boomy left in this world. And the idea of like him abandoning him, it's like, you know, of course he's going to go after him because he's literally like his one connection to the past that he still remembers. Yeah. Yeah, And he doesn't know what he's going to find. He's he's going just on that. And that just seeing that. And it's like, okay, 
it could be, we don't know what the scenario is going to be, but he's going to, he wants to find out no matter what. Cause just for that very reason, you know? Yeah. So again, uh, you know, in pure avatar fashion, uh, you know, we have kind of like a darker beginning, but immediately kind of gets into some nice comic relief. Sokka's complaining about, you know, Oh, like, why didn't we use this to get in the first time? And it's just like pops open the sewer drain. It's like, that's why. (laughs) And I love that scene. It's so short, but it's like Aang's using his air bending to like, get like the water away. Katara's using her water bending and then it just pans back. And Sokka is just like getting, all of this water in the face and it's just like it is such quintessential like what happens to Sokka he is always the butt end of bending in the show <laughs> no he's basically getting waterboarded with sewage which I really can't imagine <laughs> that's horrible having a good day after that <laughs> <laughs> but he keeps going on that's that's Sokka it's <laughs> yeah, persistent I'll give him that <laughs> so they uh, they make it through and um you know get up through the kind of sewer drain and pop into a mashu and of course we're introduced to the adorable purple pentapus uh and i i i love this like this whole scene because it's like you know Sokka freaks out ang's like you know it's just like this little animal it's just like it's fine and he tickles it and then it like pops off and it's like oh my god this is so cute <laughs> It really is. It's obnoxiously cute. <laughs> I, I have no idea it's foreshadowing. It just seems like a random cute avatar creature moment mm-hmm. where you see turtle ducks and, you know, all, and you just think, oh, this is just another creature. And it's a, it's a, it's um, just a comic relief moment. And then we have no idea that, that that little thing is like a key in the episode, which I just that totally surprised me, too. Like, yeah. And what's great about this episode, too, is that it is such a great um, it's such a great reflection of the last time that we were in Omashu, whereas, you know, Aang, Katara and Sokka are trying to make their way in and they're stopped by the Earth King, like the by this like Earthbender guard. And he's just like, what are you doing here? And like Aang is like, I'm, you know, Pips and Pat Apocalypse the third. And like immediately Katara, so fast on her feet, like immediately comes in. It's like, I'm June Pips and Pat and Apocalypse or however you say it. <laughs> and but like, again, we get this here where like the guards come up, they're questioning them. And Katara's like, he has this sickness. It's like it's Pentapox. And it's just like using that situation, knowing that like, okay, like Sokka's covered with all of this. Like, how are we going to play this? And immediately just kind of like throws it in the other direction so that <laughs> they start freaking out about it. She's, she's so quick. She's the kind of person you'd want in a situation like any where it's sticky and you're like, quick, you got to think of something, get us out of this. And she would just have something ready to go. Like she's always, like quick like that. Yeah, her, her improv skills are pretty much on point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Like, if that were a skill on um, um, Skyrim, like, I could see it on the bottom of the screen every time they go to a Mashu, Katara's thing saying, your improv improved. <laughs> oh, man. We need to make an edit of that. Charisma in D&D. <laughs> she rolled. It's like, okay, I want to convince these guards that uh, he has Pentapox. All right, roll. Well, with my charisma yeah, modifier, charisma that is a 24. <laughs> they are convinced. Yeah, natural 20. Yeah, I'm zen. E 20 every time. Yes. <laughs> Let's face uh, it, guitar is borderline a bard at this point. 
<laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. Uh, so that scene ends and then uh, we switch over to uh, a scene with Azula. Um, and we have uh, Lee and Lowe giving that kind of just like haunting, like almost it feels like it's like poetry almost where they're just going back and forth about like what she, you know, it's like, I didn't write the whole thing down, but that whole, like anytime they do that banter where it's back and forth, it's always like so hauntingly poetic and it's like just a little bit of creepiness, but they're like, creepy. No, they're <laughs> creepy. they creep me out. That, <laughs> out. That's all I have to say about them. I can't, I almost have trouble watching them cause it is poetic, but they're just like, it's creepy. They just, oh, they just, they're so creepy. I don't know. <laughs> I almost have trouble watching cause they're just like, how do they do that? How do they talk like that? And, yeah, um, it, and it's this idea of just like, you know, advising Azula to, you know, keep the element of surprise. But what I love about this scene is that they suggest it, but then Azula kind of is just like, she's like, yes, this is becoming too burdensome. Like, you know, this is only like, it's dead weight. Like, I need a small elite team. And it's almost like anytime someone suggests something to Azula, she clearly processes it, but the way that she kind of, uh, outwardly responds to that it is like this is my idea and like this was like you know it, it, she just takes control and takes ownership of every single situation that she's in and that's something I want to focus on with this episode because this is some great Azula moments that we see in this and it's just building her character and making her such a like again a formidable antagonist for this season definitely yeah, she tell she shows her true colors right away with this. It's like you, you kind of see the kind of person she is, even just when she's recruiting her little team there and how she treats them. So we get to uh, we switch back to Omashu and uh, we are introduced to May and her family. Um, and what I I thought it was interesting is because they have this scene. You see May walking along with her mother and her mother is carrying baby Tom Tom. They're being escorted uh, by these guards. And, you know, it's kind of like this, it's a funny scene a little bit. Cause like may is just so over this whole situation. And the mom is just like, you know, it's like your father was appointed governor. Like this is a good thing. And in a way, again, it is taking a, a foe, the fire nation and they are humanizing them you're creating kind of like a sympathetic moment so that when we switch to the earthbenders and the resistance who are about to attack them, it's kind of like this, ooh, this isn't just like, you know, imagine this scene without that context because then we're just seeing it again from that perspective of like, yeah, it's these invaders, like they're attacking them. They should be doing this. But it's such a great way to not only set up May's character, but like kind of, again, humanize the Fire Nation. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's kind of a beautiful thing. That's the most, that why this show is just so mature and beyond, beyond its years is because it's not, it's, it's not, it's one of those stories where it's like, this is the good guy and this is the bad guy. There's all this uh, gray in between. There's all these, it, it, again, it's important to humanize them because, you know, some people have no idea what's going on and, and some, and not everybody wants to be involved. And then you have kids and then you have families and you have, and you have all these personal stories that they're kind of, now they're letting us into in this kind of, in this episode as, as an example, that it, it then makes you kind of step back for a second and think about 
the different perspectives on that. And I think that's whenever I see that in a show or a story or whatever, I'm always just immediately more in, in touch and in tune with that because it's just, I, um, I don't like it when they just assign, this is all immediately bad and this is all immediately good. And that's so boring to me. To me it's boring. It, it, for this, it's sort of like giving some, it's fleshing out the situation um, and giving some perspective on, you know, what, what's going on here. Um, and which, which is ultimately then as we, you know, you go, if you go further down the series and start reading the comics, you get, you get even more of that with the co- kind of the cross combination, the combination of all the different nations and peoples and um, cultures and, and, you know, and the issues that arise with that. And you start to see everybody's different perspective inside on that. And the, and this is kind of like a little kind of beginning of that, you know, the final, in the in it's sort of becoming incorporated into the earth kingdom culture so you know obviously this is the first kind of introduction to may and like uh i, I don't know like chris and what was it like for you to kind of see this introduction again of may um like into this world and like kind of again it's that idea of like we know where a character goes and then seeing the first time that they're introduced what was that like for you so what I really love about May is how she embodies what we feel like is your typical teenager because I remember how just uh, I was I was an awful I'm not gonna lie I was terrible as a teenager like I was your stereotypical like emo kid and stuff like that I wore all my black and all that stuff I mean it's it was funny too because it was very much at odds with my personality but that's how I felt I I was very often like complaining about everything and oh I don't want to do this and this is really boring can I just stay at home and relax or something like May when I first saw her I was I I felt a very strong connection to her (laughs) which was so weird because I am such an outspoken person but at that point in my life I felt very strongly connected with her feelings for very different reasons. And looking back at it as an adult now and getting my second impression of her, it's like, you know, I remember really liking May and I do still like her because she's one of those characters that in the end ends up being more complex than she lets on. But I remember first watching her and going, Oh, I don't miss those years. (laughs) I don't miss being that way. But she is such a cool character though. She, you know, of, of the two who get introduced between her and Ty Lee, I love her introduction because she does kind of give that initial, like, I'm a bored, dreary teenager who is always complaining. But then as soon as an inkling of a fight is, is, is introduced, she automatically turns into this predator, essentially, mm. with the way she wields her knives and she chases after people. I mean, she does give up pretty easily for the most part when the Earthbenders get rid of them. It's not like she would do something <laughs> that I would assume... Azula would do where she would call on more of a chase to track them down. She's just like, all right, they're gone. Whatever. I had my moment. <laughs> like she definitely has like that ADD moment, but I, I love how contrasted her introduction is, how she's presented and now how within moments later of how she actually acts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, especially with Ty Lee, such polar opposites yet. They're, and they're all friends. It's like, <laughs> yeah he's like this bubble yeah for sure and you know and just to kind of like finish up on that scene with may you know it, again it's it we're seeing uh you know a 
like a different type of fighter in this world. You know, we have seen, you know, obviously just kind of these warriors wielding swords or spears and, uh, you know, of course, all the different types of benders. And now we're kind of seeing more of like, you know, what is like more of like a, like a ninja and like that type of like fighting where it's like more stealth and subterfuge and like, you know, throwing darts and knives. It's like this is this is a whole different type of thing now. And it's like she's lethal. And it's like, you know, on top of, you know, this kind of, you know, fun character introduction, it's just like, whoa, I'm intrigued. Like, what else is she capable of? <laughs> So, of course, like like you were saying, that gets us to, you know, we go from this to Ty Lee. Um, And, of course, Ty Lee's introduction, she is, like, doing, like, a headstand and is, like, upside down. And I love that camera perspective. We see Azula kind of, like, hanging (laughs) upside down off the earth. And then it switches over and we see kind of, you know, what she's, uh, what she's talking, you know, who she's talking to. And I, I love that when Azula brings up how she's like, well, certainly we weren't sent to the Royal Fire Academy to end up here. And it's this like, you know, it's such a great trope of like someone running off and joining the circus, even though they've had like, you know, a great opportunity. <laughs> she yeah. is literally that trope. But, <laughs> at the same, but at the same time, she's not like, you know, again, you know, May being my spirit animal when I was a teenager, Tylee was obviously... In some ways, my opposite, but at the same time, still me. It was really weird. Um, <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> but, like, naturally, when I first saw her, I was like, oh, no, I am not that, like, bubbly pink thing. But, <laughs> and while I'm still not a bubbly person, I still end up falling somewhere in between the two of them where I am highly sociable and I really try to go out of my way to be friendly with people. Um, and, you know, like both of them try to keep things a little bit more internalized. And at the same time, I can be very much like May and have my gothy emo moments. But <laughs> it is it is so interesting. They are such cool characters because while they're both introduced as tropes, we in both cases, we get to see something really incredible with both of them. May is introduced as your, your emo goth kid. Ty Lee is introduced as this preppy little... Uh, bubble of a of a girl who's very popular and we see it throughout the series where she gets lots of attention but I mean she's she's not just a face though Ty Lee's got some serious skills and there is no question why Azula chose these two it is not simply because they grew up together and she she has a history with them they are obviously very skilled individuals and there is no question why she chose them even in the beginning before we know them they show a lot of skill where it's like okay this is cool. I yeah. want to see this. Yeah. yeah. Well, and especially with Ty Lee, because I, I feel like, again, you know, okay, okay, we see she's like a very talented, you know, like gymnast, trapeze artist, and all of that, where it's like, okay, we get to see that. But it's like, it's, she's kind of like a sleeper, you know, like a agent in that sense, because we'll, of course, get into that fight later. But it's like when we realize what she can do. And how lethal it is. It's kind of like they set us up to like, okay, she's like this bubbly, like, you know, aura focused, like, you know, character. It's just like, what is she really going to bring to the table? Even if she can like, you know, be like super flexible and bounce around and all of that. It's like, oh no, she can chi block and she can wreck benders. <laughs> yeah, that was surprising to me. 
Because yeah. again, and they set that up so beautifully. When you look back, it's in hindsight. It's like, oh, I should have like seen that coming. Like, why would why would she pick this? She's talented, but what what else does she got? And I don't I don't think I could have even foreseen that. So yeah. going back to seeing it now was like, oh my gosh, how did I not pick up on that? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, it it switches back to Omashu, and uh, we are introduced to the Resistance, um, basically the citizens of Omashu that have, you know, uh, assumingly not sided with the Fire Nation. Um, That's one kind of thing that I I do wish we could have seen from this, and I, I... understandable we're dealing with a kids tv show it's only 22 minutes long but like the world history and like that side of me is just like okay you've like conquered this like population like you know did you bring in all fire nation citizens like how are the mail systems still working how is the city still functioning like did you integrate and assimilate like what's going on (laughs) it's like that's where my mind was going this time but like you know i know when i first watched this i was just like oh okay resistance like yeah they're underground it's just like you know they gotta they gotta fight their way back <laughs> yeah yeah it's that's what's kind of and then that's where the com i think the comics in between the two series kind of like really get into that because mm. that does raise a lot of questions it's not a simple switch you know it's it's like i think and i think watching this now with you meet the resistance i'm in my brain this time assuming that uh people are just most people uh, not to generalize here, are just controlled by fear, and the Fire Nation is very fierce, and they're just going to kind of go along with whatever, just to protect their families. So you're going to have this other group that's sort of like underground to be like, okay, well, we got to like do something about it. In my brain, I'm like, okay, there's there's maybe a mix, and the Fire Nation, I think, uh, you know, the, the Earth people that, the Earth Kingdom uh, folks that live there are just sort of like trying to get by and not try to cause any problems except for yeah. the ones that are like in the resistance and maybe some of them are secretly in there. That's why they can't. Really, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, and again, we're presented with these, like, you know, this interesting, you know, the ideology of the, the leader being like, Hey, freedom is worth dying for. We have to fight our way to like, take this city back. And we find out that, you know, Boomi surrendered the city. And I mean, it's just like this very serious moment. And this guy is just like clearly very upset by this. He's like, when they started attacking, we were ready to fight. And then, and then King Boomy said, and I love how it transitions. Like it doesn't even let the guy say that. It just transitions to that flashback. It's just like, I'm going to do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they try to convince us yet again that he's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> he's such a beautiful human being though. Like, yeah, on so many levels, like you, you have to appreciate Boomy because he really, you know, it it's it starts out as like a joke, but you, it, it, every time we see Boomy, that whole mad genius comment really shines through because yeah. he really is brilliant. And part of it, you know, it's funny too because madness in this case is a perspective. You know, sometimes we think people are abnormal or really strange uh, when they know a lot of things. Um, because mm. we're limited in our perspective. And for somebody like Boomy, who's lived for a long time, he's been a ruler, he's been exposed to a lot, um, he probably has a lot of perspective that other people lack. And not to say that his behavior isn't also suggestive, but the fact that he is so old, so experienced, has, has you know, it's not like he spent his entire life poor and only has one perspective. You know, he certainly seemed like, 
I mean, maybe he grew up in some form of royalty. I don't know how he became king. I don't know how the government works there if you fight for it, if it's if it's a <laughs> blood trait and he was a prince. But when we first meet him, he's obviously not acting like a very high-class individual. He's, he's messy. He's playful. He's silly. He gets in trouble. And he obviously has a lot of perspective. And I think that's part of where that madness comes in is that he mm. has – too much perspective and people look at him they're like you're crazy this isn't gonna work you know because obviously the resistance had no faith in him and the fact that he surrendered but then booby explains to us what happened oh it's that you bring up a great point because it's like you know the types of leaders that we see in the avatar world are you know the types of leaders that we typically see in kind of world history it's like you know you have these calm collected leaders who are just you know like trying to you know maintain peace or trying to do things by the books and boomy is just coming in and like he is like like you said bringing in these different perspectives and he's like a little crazy but you know again it's like you have to it's this line of like, okay, we have to take him seriously, but then he does these things where you're just like, oh, you're really trying me, Boomy. <laughs> <laughs> he must have a, when you first see that, it's like, okay, he's he he had a reason last time that we met him, and and he completely fooled us. He had a perspective on that. So what's like, what is his angle? I yeah. think I remember thinking that when he's when they said oh he surrendered, I'm like, they're not doing this just to be comical. It's like there's there's definitely. He's definitely got a reason for this. He's he's a he's the good kind of crazy. He's not the bad kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. but at the same time, though, it's just like okay, but why? But like, why? why would you surrender? And it's just like it sets up a great like kind of mystery at the beginning of the episode. It's just like okay, we know that he is like more than meets the eye, and he has like you know like these master plans. He's a mad genius, but like okay, but what is it this time? And that's what I loved, like, how they kind of set this up. Um, But obviously, they kind of talk, and Aang is like, look, you guys, you need to stop living like this. Like, let's retreat to fight another day. And I love how just quickly everyone's just like, yeah, you know, that sounds really good. I'm sick of fighting. (laughs) Like, they're all just like, and that guy is like, well, he reads the room real fast. And he's like, all right. (laughs) Well, and, and again, like, we don't know how long this has actually been going on, too. And it's mm-hmm. it's very realistic. I mean, as much as we romanticize fighting for freedom, wars and, and revolutions and resistances are taxing physically, financially, emotionally, all these things. I mean, it makes perfect sense that their first reaction when they get some form of relief is, yes, please. Yeah. I want it. <laughs> for sure. Um, and, and of course, you know, we leave it to Sokka, the plan man, and he is like, all right, I know how we're going to get people out. Again, it's this great, you know, affirmation of Sokka as the plan guy in the group and, you know, the, coming up with this idea um, to give everyone Pentapox and, you know, using that to kind of like get everyone out and Aang staying, though, to find Boomy. And just understanding that, you know, he he came here to accomplish something and he needs to see this through. Um, so we kind of have this like, you know, side by side, uh, you know, we have like three different scenes happening during this. So the first is Aang 
uh, trying to find Boomy. He finds Flopsy imprisoned and used for labor, which was just like so sad. That was like such a sad image. (laughs) It was, and his little tail wagging. It's like, oh no, Flopsy. Um, and then we also have, uh, Momo who like wants food and (laughs) goes in, starts eating these like cherries and is like spitting out the pits or the seeds and pursued by Tom Tom, which is like, it's such, it, it's something that like, it just like, it's cartoon logic that they use so well because I love it. It's just like Momo gets away and then like he flies out to that ledge. He turns around and Tom Tom is already on the ledge, like <laughs> what, like, <laughs> like waddling after him. Good. <laughs> um, and, and, and we all cor- know that terror. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> when like a cat sees an infant walk into a room and the cat's like, Nope, I'm out. Like that is <laughs> literally the, ex- the, the precise reaction. Like I'm wondering how many people in animation for this series had pet cats because Momo <laughs> was basically a cat in lemur form. <laughs> Specifically, he based Momo off of his cat. So I'm oh, wondering cool. like, like if he had some kind of story to go along with that. Like, it makes yeah. perfect sense. <laughs> and, and of course, the other scene going on is the uh, all of the the Omashu citizens uh basically doing their best like you know night of the living dead like impersonations like to get out of the uh <laughs> to get out of the city uh which is just like such a great like comedic relief it's just you know again we we have the very sad scene with flopsy but it's just like balanced out by these funny scenes with momo and with the the citizens leaving um but what i loved about the whole scene with momo and tom tom is that we get to it's the use of the sliding mail system again. Uh, you know, they're like <laughs> sliding down in like these, like, you know, the baskets and it just like, it's such a fun like system to work with. And you can tell that they're like, Hey, we're back in Omashu. We have to like use this for all that it's worth. Uh, and they just really leaned into that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so again, they get out of the city and uh, it switches back to Azula's storyline and to Tylee's performance. And this whole scene is like a true testament to who Azula is as a character. Um, again, she asks, you know, well, you know, they're the, surely she's very talented. Like, why do you have a net? And <laughs> the guy's like, well, but but the performers and Azula's response, of course that's been done before it's not of course the safety of the performers of course removing like her mind is already just like trying to figure out how to make this more high stakes and then sets the net on fire we're like okay that's 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 bad and then she's like oh what kind of like animals you have and this guy is so thrilled to like we both some of the most exotic animals and she's like release them all She's crazy. It's scary. That was like, all right, this this girl is just, oh my god. <laughs> and I would, oh yeah, it's that is like when I when I heard that again, like I remember not thinking too much of it initially. Like, of course, that's terrifying and scary, and the idea of it. I mean, based on the sounds you hear, you have to know the animals being released are really intense. But then going back again, and after hearing this as somebody who works with animals like that is every animal care professional's nightmare (laughs) like the idea of having big dangerous animals running around having to corral them then potentially getting hurt 
uh, running away. Like this is literally like a nightmare. So I'm sitting here like the I'm sitting here like those poor animals are terrified. There's fire everywhere. There's someone who's <laughs> everything's chaotic. I'm sure the people who take care of the animals are utterly horrified because they're like, oh god, the animals. Why would you do like just that scene watching it again gave me so much anxiety I did not anticipate because I knew it was going to happen. It's not like I didn't already know the episode, but I didn't think about what kind of impact it was going to have on me as somebody who like, that's literally a fear is, is some accident happens and it, it really does like, it's, it's a stereotype. It's not always necessarily true, but there is the notion that, you know, uh, how you treat animals reflects on how you treat people. And people joke all the time, like, oh, that kid's, that person's really abusive towards animals. They must secretly be a serial killer. Like, there is no question at that point who Azula is. Yeah. Because she's not only abusing people, she's abusing animals. It's like, all right, she's just the utter worst person on the face of the planet. Yeah. And the thing is, is like her total disregard for the safety of the people in there and the safety of the animals, it is all because she has one goal. She needs to manipulate Tylee into joining her and she will do anything and everything to get what she wants. And that is who Azula is at her core. She does not care who gets hurt or what happens to anybody else if they are in their way or if they are a potential tool to be used for her to get what like for her to achieve her goal. She will use them. Yeah, (sighs) she's so scary. (laughs) And then, of course, you know, we we followed up with this, like, dressing room scene and, like, Azula, you know, just so coolly comes in. I can't wait to see how you'll top yourself tomorrow. And it's like, that's all she needs to say. And Tylee is like, well, I uh, just got, you know, a new kind of aura vision and uh, I uh, believe I have a new career change coming up. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God. The universe God. is giving me very strong signals. <laughs> Yeah, animals and screaming people and oh, gosh. <laughs> like, I wonder how much of that was Tylee and how much of that was like the the circus people were just like get out if she's gonna stay here, <laughs> right? You, just get out. We That's a really good again. Yeah, I, I did not think tired. about that. No, it's like no, it's just it's like if 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 they see what happens and they it's, it's chaos over one person, like yeah, get out. You're not worth it. You're just you're gonna ruin the whole circus. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good. Wow, I did not even think about that. That's a great point. Well, as, <laughs> as somebody who has had to let people go because their real life has has spilled into the workplace before, like I, you know, I get it. Like you know, for the most part, you always want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, and you know, the person I'm referring to in particular had had quite a few warnings about this, but it. It persisted. But in this particular case, just considering the amount of damage that was done, the setbacks for the circus, like we don't even know what happened with the fire. Like they could have burned down the tent. All of this <laughs> financial loss, the devastation, the labor used to have to round up the animals and to fix things. They have to get a new net. Like all the losses, like there's probably no way that Ty Lee was worth the amount of damage that occurred simply because of her existence and her relationship with Azula. So I'm, I'm pretty sure there was some, at the very least some pressure for her to leave. So I'm sure the universe wasn't just Azula. It was also <laughs> the people at the circus. You know, see, that's what's so good about revisiting this as adults, because honestly, I would have never 
thought about that like as a kid like it just would have been like oh this was clearly azula manipulating but like that makes so much sense yeah it does not bad because it's sort of like you know the funny thing is then looking back as an adult too like tylee agrees to 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 do it she must know that azula had some part in this she didn't actually you know what i'm saying like she asked for all this to happen and I question that, and it's just sort of like, and she's not, she's must be frightened of her to to join her because that's not a very good friend. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you grow up especially, and you're sort of like, I won't tolerate that. Are you kidding me? Get out! I'm not, I'm not joining you on anything. It gets, she's also would threaten her probably with I don't know what. So yeah. Azula is the toxic relationship we are all warned about. Like yes. every meme about toxic <laughs> relationships is basically about azula yep absolutely so we we see this scene end and we switch back to ang and katara and sokka and the uh resistance leader tells them they did a head count and they have one extra and that's when we see that tom tom has now joined the camp and we we get this great scene where tom tom is looking to play with sokka's club and sokka's just like bad fire nation baby (laughs) like makes him cry (laughs) but you know even though it's this comedic moment we get a very poignant commentary on the perspectives of war um which is again what this show does so well and you know we see the idea of tom tom's innocence through katara's eyes she sees a child she sees this young innocent kid and she is like being tender and loving and the Obviously, the resistance leader is kind of just giving this cold reality of, yeah, he's cute now, but he's going to grow up and he's going to be a killer for the Fire Nation army. And what really stood out to me watching this episode this time with this scene is that how this is echoed so clearly in the Avatar uh, series finale when they discover the portrait of, uh, well, Katara believes it to be uh, Zuko, but it's little baby Ozai. And it has that cute moment and Zuko coming in and saying, well, that child grew up to be a monster. And Aang, you know, having this kind of like moment of just like, he was just a kid. He is like, people just, there's still people on the inside. And that's kind of like at the core of his airbending philosophy and what was interesting is that we didn't really get ang's perspective in this scene which i think is more of a commentary of like he's observing he's watching this and i think he's kind of taking that in which makes that scene later in the series you know more him kind of stepping up and saying something about it because it affects him directly now in a big way and i remember this from philosophy class too and this kind of plays into that was we had debates about you know different people have different perspectives on when people are born. Are they blank canvases? Are they, are they uh, predetermined or do they have a, are they, are they going to grow up with a specific personality because of how they are physiologically? Like there's a lot of things to consider when we talk about uh, people's destinies or how people might have to grow up a certain way because of different things. So, I mean, it very it's, it's an introduction of the concept of the blank canvas. You mm. know, even though this child is born of the Fire Nation and the Fire Nation has a very nasty uh, rep, um, reputation, um, 
you don't see that reflected in it. You know, he's not this cruel, angry, like, uh, conqueror like everybody else. He's just a baby. He is a blank slate. And, you know, his experiences and the things he, he takes in are going to determine who he is. Maybe if things had gone differently and the Fire Nation had won, maybe he could have grown up to become uh, somebody who were, who was in the army and killed people. He might become a deadly bureaucrat or he might hmm. be like father, a little bit more of a bumbling bureaucrat. But <laughs> that, that, is a, that is a philosophy that some people prescribe to and some people don't believe it. And that's kind of what I saw on the scene was... You know, there was Katara who views it very much as this is a blank slate. This is not a child who's done anything wrong. He doesn't understand, you know, what's going on. None of this is his fault. I won't take it out on him. Versus the resistant soldier who's like, you know, he is predestined to be this way because of who he is. So I'm going to treat him like I expect him to be. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, it, that's and again, it's it's introducing these like, you know, great philosophical concepts in a scene that is so short, but again, so poignant. And it's any time that Bright can kind of pepper that in, they do it. And so much of like, you know, again, what their show is about, what it, you know, really centralizes on is this cycle of war. And it's this idea of like, you know, Again, if you're prescribing to that, you believe people are predestined to do that and you are going to cause like if you're going to exude hate and cause violence, it's just going to continue that cycle. And it's so interesting to have that perspective and why Katara's perspective and Aang's perspective is so important to be able to kind of break that. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to episode 14 of Legend of Portalcast. Um, just wanted to do a quick thank you uh, because I got a little Facebook memory today that uh, one year ago exactly was when we recorded our very first episode of this podcast. Um, it started out as an idea of just getting together back with friends and seeing perspectives uh, now that we're older about this show. And it has been such an incredible journey uh, to reunite with everyone, uh, talk about this show and all the new insights uh, that we now have as older adults. Um, And it just really put things into perspective and just wanted to thank you guys so much for all of your support. Um, It has been so much fun to share this and has been an immensely gratifying creative outlet. I know for me personally, and I know for our hosts as well. Um, So without further ado, or without further ado, let's get back to the episode. Thanks, guys. (laughs) So we get into the kind of the last third of this episode, and we're now offered our Ang, Katara, and Sokka and the Resistance, they're offered a trade. Tom Tom for King Boomy. And, you know, again seemingly okay this is a great situation they will be able to get boomy they can uh, bring back this kid that they didn't even really technically kidnap <laughs> so it works out and like it shows through ang's optimism the sun is rising over omashu and he is like today is a new day and he's like so hopeful about it and then it cuts to azula and it has like that boom, like fire nation just like 
<laughs> like sting and it's just like her arriving in the palanquin and you're like oh oh no oh no this this is not good <laughs> it's not gonna go as as nicely as Aang in hopes <laughs> yeah um and of course this is you know this is the first time we get to see azula may and ty lee all together and this is the small elite team um you know of course we've been introduced to may's abilities um and obviously azula wants her to be part of that may is enthusiastic to be a part of it because it is again so dreadfully boring in omashu um and what's great is that you know you have this scene where Azula's like, okay, she's sitting on the throne in this like room, the governor room, essentially. And she is kind of like instantly putting herself in it, in this leadership position, showing who she is, not giving anyone any chance and saying like, you mess this up. You are making a mess of things here. I'm going to fix it. And, um, what I thought was interesting though, in the terms of the writing she doesn't say, I'm going to go and do this trade. She says, May is going to do this trade. And it's it's such a little detail. But again, it's also this like, she's giving May that kind of carrot too. And yeah. it's like, I'm going to, it's like, you know, this is, this is your, like, you deserve this responsibility because you are that capable. You are more capable than your father to do any of this. And it's like, again, such a great way for Azula to manipulate May into, you know, being a part of her cause, even though May was super on board with it, is ready to do that. Azula is always trying to garner favor. I feel like anything that she can do to kind of like stack more of those chips in her corner, she's going to do it. Yeah. So uh, we get to the trade. Um, and God, I love this scene because we see Katara, Sokka, and Aang with Tom Tom and uh, Azula, May, and Tylee approach. And then they lower Boomy with this crane, and he is just like cackling in this metal coffin with his like face exposed. <laughs> like, it, it's like this moment again, this comedic moment in this sort of very serious, like, face off if you will and then mm-hmm. he's just sort of like, <laughs> just like <laughs> it, it's just like he is totally unaffected by all of this um and one of the great details in this like intro to this scene that i love is as they're about to kind of conduct the trade azula's like you know i just thought of something we're trading a child for a powerful earthbending king. And as they're kind of doing this back and forth banter, like Boomy's head is just following the conversation. And then when she says it, he's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, not oh, yeah, he totally agrees. He's like, oh yeah, sure. This is fine. Like I accept my fate. That's really right. <laughs> <laughs> God, it's just such a great little character moment. Oh, um, that's fun. So, and then it breaks out into this fight. So what I want to do is I want to break this fight. Uh, I kind of broke it down where like with the outline here, I want to kind of just break this down beat by beat because I think there's just so much great stuff that happens here. 
So the very first thing is, of course, Azula calls off the trade and Boomy is lifted back up um, and he it's just is like, goodbye, everybody. <laughs> it's just like a Looney Tunes like exit of him, like being craned up. Yep. <laughs> yep. And Aang flies off to get Boomy and then Azula realizes that he's the Avatar. And it's like she has that great moment where she's like, the Avatar my lucky day. <laughs> and it's like, oh my gosh. Um, again, it it's her just knowing that she's going to get even more out of this. It's reaffirming her decision to go with this small elite team. She knows she made the right call. Um, and as Sokka and Katara are running away to, you know, find Appa and like, you know, go escape with Tom Tom. Tylee does this great like surprise ground fist like through the ground like up through the boards to like knock Sokka um like up and away. And this is a this is where we get to see the first glimpse of like oh okay they were up above and now she in the matter of like the time it took for them to start running away made her way underneath this and had the precision to just like knock his foot through these boards as they were in a full sprint. Like she has echolocation or something. Like she literally <laughs> predicted, I mean, not just where they were, but like the he just happened to run over that right spot and the foot was at the right angle. Like there are a lot of things that aligned really well. So I'm pretty sure that given her personality, she is part dolphin. There is a pink river dolphin <laughs> that lives in the Amazon. And I'm almost 100% sure that Tylee is part river dolphin. <laughs> Hashtag part river dolphin. That's our <laughs> hashtag for the week. <laughs> oh my gosh. Tylee <laughs> dolphin. Oh, that's great. Um, and, and then of course we get to see May, uh, you know, using her skills again, um, you know, throwing out the darts, but then we get to see a great moment again of Katara's just new prowess with water bending to show how much, that training up at the Northern Water Tribe has really paid off because she uses her waterbending to kick up boards to block these incoming darts. I mean, it's like such crazy finesse for her to be able to do this in quick thinking. Yeah, she got, you know, they, I love how they show her progression as a waterbender throughout the episodes. You know, you really notice it, especially going back another time. You watch it. She's like, I was like, wow, she got really good. <laughs> it's like amazing now. And I have to admit, as much as I dislike her, I think part of it is her training, but I think it also is a natural cleverness of hers. Because yeah. as much as we credit Sokka with being resourceful and clever and intuitive and all that stuff, Katara has a bit of that too, because we see it in much later episodes, like when she, um, when they try to use wood against her in the prison in the Fire Nation, and she uses her own sweat to cut through it. Like, she is an out-of-the-box thinker, mm. and that's part of what makes her such a great waterbender, because you can teach people all the skills you want, but the ability to make quick and, and good decisions in those split, deadly moments is, you know, what defines a really good warrior, is not just skill, but also knowing how and when to use it appropriately and what resources are available to you. Um, we hear that again later on where uh, Sokka's learning his his sword fighting and he's like, use the terrain to your advantage. Like the series keeps showing us how how quick and clever and really smart these kids are. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a lot of it is a product of, you know, 
Katara and Sokka growing up in the South Pole in a very small village where they do not have a lot of resources. They had to learn to be, you know, like quick on their feet and come up with creative solutions because they don't have a full-fledged civilization to really kind of rely on anymore. It has become this incredibly reduced, like, just barely little village, whereas, you know, other benders are maybe used to growing up in, you know, bigger places or things like that. It just, they really, it, it shows not only, I think, like a product of their place, but also just, I think, also just the two of them as well. They inherited a lot of it, I think, and learned from their father and mother as well. Um, but without kind of diving too deep into that, there will be time to fully appreciate Sokka and Katara in future episodes, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, again, we get this great moment where Katara, she uh, pulls Tylee away with water bending as she is about to get to Sokka. Um, and the battle shifts to Azula using, I mean, she uses this like pulley system to ascend up like this whole operation very quickly and attacks Aang as he is trying to freeze the chains uh, to break Boomy free. Um, but he manages to do that in the meantime. And lo and behold, they go back down the chutes, um, which leads us into a great sequence with the shoot fight. Um, you know, Azula in quick pursuit and Aang with Boomy rolling down, Boomy trying to say that he needs to talk to Aang, but obviously it's very loud. Aang can't hear him, and he's just like, I'm excited to see you too. <laughs> and uh we get, you know, some great back and forth between Aang and Azula, and Azula is constantly kind of adapting and having to work, you know, with kind of the system and trying this is something that Aang is very familiar with. He grew up and came to Omashu and played on these shoots. He knows what this is all about. Azula, this is her first time in the city, and she is navigating this with incredible finesse and prowess. And, you know, we see that really in, in such a great moment where Aang uses airbending to break the wooden frames. And Azula, seemingly, we see, like, the crate is still sliding down, but nothing's in there. And then she, like, pops up, and it's like, of course she made it through. She's Azula. <laughs> yeah, she seems sort of... um infallible in this mm. like scene she just like she she can move with every move that he throws at her she's like a step ahead or like with him or a step ahead like we didn't expect her to pop up it's like oh up, yep there she did <laughs> well i think a lot of it too is like you know she always i think acts with the stakes high but i think knowing that like the avatar is so close within her grasp that she is like okay I really have to pull out all the stops because there is no margin for error when it comes to this. So it switches back. Uh, we see Katara uh, really kind of taking hold of the fight. Uh, she does this great waterbending attack, wraps water around May May's arm and then freezes it. And May is like immediately instinctively tries to do like this chop to break it, but it's like solid. And again, Katara's prowess with just like bringing that to the freezing point where you can't even like break that. But then this is where, as we were talking about earlier, that kind of sleeper moment for Tylee comes in and we see Tylee approach and we're like, okay, what is she going to do? And with every hit that she does on Katara, there's a great effect where they have this like frame or two of like a white 
panel or like a white block to kind of with like this great little sting. So I was like, we're like, okay, this has some kind of significance. And then she can't bend anymore. And it's like, oh, oh, what? (laughs) That changes everything. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, do you guys, I don't know. Do you have any particular like, memories of like seeing that for the first time or like knowing like having that kind of any impressions or what your thoughts were revisiting at this time (laughs) i think i for a moment thought that while azula is presented as the you know in our minds in the beginning of the series the fire lord is the ultimate bad guy and we see zuko and zuko's kind of a bad guy also kind of not back and forth kind of thing. And then we meet Azula and it's like, okay, this is the worst. Like the fire Lord's worse than this. This is real bad. Like, I feel like Azula is the real bad guy. When I saw Ty Lee do that. And especially remember from my teenage perspective, I remember thinking like, this is the true bad guy in the series. She's pink. She's bubbly. And she's probably (laughs) like the deadliest of the three in a world where benders rule essentially because of their abilities you know, Ty Lee might be the deadliest person on the planet because she has that ability. And as far as we know, she's the only one. And I remember thinking, watch the series end with this little pink tutu girl being like (laughs) the ultimate (laughs) bad guy. It's not about the fight with the Fire Lord. It's about the fight with the little tutu girl. Like, (laughs) that was my angsty teenager self as an adult. And again, seeing it again, like, I, I have to admire Ty Lee because, you know, that's not easy. That... Human bodies are so different. None of us are built the same way. So to be able to pinpoint pressure points on as many different body types as she attacks, she is she really kind of is an extremely impressive character. Like as deadly as Azula and her lightning bending is, and as cool as Mai and her knife tricks are, Tai Lee is probably the coolest and probably most skilled individual of the three, just based on that ability alone to be able to navigate the human body so thoroughly, regardless of body type and do it with the accuracy she does. It is devastating. Yeah. I, I I would definitely agree. And I, I think that, you know, also what, what it also works to Tylee's advantage as well, especially in this situation is that it is this element of surprise and underestimating an opponent because Tylee is unassuming, you know, it's like, you know, okay, we have this very bubbly aura girl and everything. And it's just like, then she comes out of here with that. And that I think is like, she uses that to her advantage. Um, and I, I, I love where this discussion is, but I don't want to get too deep into it because, uh, one of our upcoming episodes, we actually are going to be talking about non-bending combatants. And I have a feeling that this is going to be a primary topic of discussion because like you said, Tylee is legitimately one of the most skilled and powerful non-bending combatants in this entire avatar universe. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag girl crush. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, we have this moment where May is just like rubbing it in Katara's face where it's just like, how are you going to fight without your bending? And then this great follow-up with the sound of boomerang whirring in and just knocking like knocking them aside and Sokka triumphantly atop uh, Appa and just saying I seem to manage 
Oh gosh. I think in the whole episode is that. (laughs) It's so great. (laughs) And then of course, Appa comes in and just gives them like the old tail whop and they just go flying backwards. And Appa's just like, get out of (laughs) here. I'm the real hero here. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Appa won everything for us. I mean, where would we have been without Appa? Actually, that's that could be a whole episode in itself. Like, we have no Avatar Les Amberter without Appa. Absolutely. No, we, we will do an Appa episode one of these days, but I feel like we got to do a lot of prep for it because we have to do Appa justice. Appa <laughs> deserves it. <laughs> uh, plus, we also have to like emotionally steal ourselves for like talking about Appa's lost days. And it's like, oh, God, I am not ready to revisit that episode right now. <laughs> it's so intense. Oh, man. So, again, Sokka and Katara and Tom Tom are able to get away on Appa, and we return to the shoot fight with uh, Azula and Aang. Um, and Azula is throwing out all the stops, trying to get to them, throws this flaming wheel down, like, the shoot, and it felt like a video game moment, kind of, where it's just, like, you're in a pursuit moment, and you're like, they're throwing this. It's like, what are you going to do? It's like, oh, no! <laughs> yeah, it did look like that. Definitely yeah. <laughs> and of course they try to get uh ang and boomy onto appa it does not succeed i mean it, i'm glad that they didn't have that because i think that would have just been so wildly unrealistic for them to like be able to pull that off because just the physics alone is like mind-boggling <laughs> like what does a shoot what does a uh a metal coffin traveling down at this speed and like landing on a flying beast going at this speed like what is this? it's like oh my god just all the equations are hovering above the head right now yeah <laughs> even for a fantasy world it would have been a stretch yeah yes. right <laughs> <laughs> um and, and of course they they end up on another shoot azula is still pursuing and then boomy earth bends and stops azula in her tracks and ang has that great moment where he's like you could earth bend this whole time well they didn't cover my face <laughs> oh gosh like he, he doesn't have many lines in this episode but every single one of them is a pure standout god boomy is the best yeah <laughs> So that brings us to um, Boomy's lesson on uh, Jinx. And again, we have this great moment where he's like, neutral Jinx. He's like, do you know anything about Jinx? He's like, yeah, there's positive Jinx when you're attacking, negative Jinx when you're retreating. He's like, and neutral Jinx. It's like, there's a third Jinx? It's like, well, technically there's 86 or 84. It's like, yeah. let's focus on the third. Um, and this is where we get insight into why Boomy stayed. And the importance of this idea of neutral Jing in earthbending. And Boomi tells Aang that it is all about waiting and listening. And of course, we know where this leads in in terms of Aang's journey and finding Toph, but it is just such a poignant moment. Again, mirroring the last episode in Omashu, where we have all this crazy action and everything that's going on, and then Bumi having this moment where he is really kind of teaching this valuable lesson to Aang. And I just want to know your guys' thoughts on revisiting this scene uh, and any new insights that you got from it. Um, well, the, again, I, once again, you have a crazy sort of situation. Bumi acts crazy, and then he always has a very 
cool and collected reasoning for his madness, um, as in being hence the mad genius. Um, he always has a, like, as, and as we were saying earlier about his perspectives that he's gained, um, ruling for so long and being, and becoming such a, a, a excellent, uh, bender himself is that understanding, um, there's, there's again, positive, negative and then there's the middle there's the neutral and it's like knowing when to do something um i've seen this before in other stories and fantasies where um i don't know if this is a tolkien thing it might be where it's when you have when a warrior has a weapon whether in this case it's bending it's knowing when not to use it that makes Mm. it a warrior um and I think that's kind of like this is where Boomy's like, I, I, he knows he had the capacity to break out at any point. He could take all these guys out, but he's, he's wanting to see what's the best reasoning for this. He's trying to have some foresight through this and see when is the best time for us to, to, to do, we do, we do what move do we make next? He's not just going to react. It's dangerous to be reactionary in a situation like this because you need to think the consequences through first. And he wants to teach that to Ang because Ang needs to learn so much so so much so quickly, um, and he's got so much on his shoulders that it's a very key lesson for him to to be mindful of that to to, to pay attention and to find somebody who can teach him that even better. Um, yeah, I, was, I thought that was profound. Going back and looking at that, that was great. What about you, Krista? Um, for me, uh, one thing that I found interesting that I don't think I really thought much about when I originally saw it was. I find it interesting how the, the, the concept of neutral Jing doesn't seem to be common. Um, cause you know, Boomy tells him to find a teacher who has mastered it, which suggests that it's either something that takes a long time to master or may not be very common. And the fact that Boomy and Aang are both familiar with it suggests that Jing obviously is something that's been around for a while. It's an understood concept for benders because, you know, Aang obviously hasn't had a lot of other lessons at this point. And so between the two of them, it can probably be assumed that they learned about this concept when they were much younger. So it's been around for a while. And obviously the additional jings are not commonplace. And it's kind of interesting because one of the things that happens and that we see throughout history is how when wars happen, especially uh, if you're on like the losing side of a war, um, how culture and stories and concepts can be lost. Mm. And we can see that sometimes even in modern times because there are some forms of, uh, whether it's martial arts or other forms of um, uh, uh, professions and things that require skills. I mean, how often do archaeologists have to go back and try to guess and recreate things because civilizations collapse due to war, famine, any number of things. And we lose those precious bits of history and of cultural knowledge. And obviously, you know, the fact that there are so many jings and people aren't necessarily aware of them all either suggests one of two things, that it's very exclusive knowledge and isn't necessarily always shared with people, or it could potentially be one of the, the, consequences of war is that people lose parts of their culture and history and since this has been going on for a hundred years there's a very good chance that people have actually lost a lot of their culture in that time period and you know we see it when we meet uh haru how earthbending is outlawed and if you think about you know the number of 
earthbending masters who were on the front lines when the war first broke out that probably perished. And, you know, if they didn't have disciples or students who are, you know, following in their footsteps, you know, a lot of information gets lost with those generations who perished during the war. And so it's, I kind of wonder if the lack of knowledge, again, is something that comes from Boomy being a master and it being something slightly more exclusive for like, you know, your high black belt kind of people, or if it is a reflection of how the war has chipped away at uh, traditional bending cultures that are not firebenders. Mm, that's a great point. I love that you brought that up too, because <clears throat> one of the things that I was thinking about while watching that was uh, I, I was reminded um, when I, a couple of years ago, I started training in Wing Chun and my teacher was telling me about this idea of the different lineages, uh, lineages and the different traditions that are kind of passed along throughout generations and this idea that like certain uh, either perspectives on techniques or different techniques within themselves, again, like you said, become lost. And even the story of Wing Chun itself, if anyone has ever watched the movie Ip Man or knows any about like that story at the time, I mean, Wing Chun right now is an incredibly widely practiced martial art throughout the world. But at the time that Ip Man was practicing, there were almost fewer than 100 practitioners in China. And it was on the brink of just evaporating from that culture entirely. And there are potential other forms that were also lost to war in China or other parts of the world where these different forms were lost. But all it takes is one person being able to share that with other people. And if it is something that clicks, it grows. And I love that you brought up the fact that, again, this is the consequence of war. And it could be very much a potential of this, of like, you know, with these masters who were probably the ones who, like you said, were sent to the front lines, like, even if they made it out, like, there is no guarantee that they are going back and teaching, like, more students about these finer things. When war comes around, certain, like, certain combat techniques become much more utilitarian. You're picking on what works in this moment and it's just attacking, retreating. And in a situation like war, neutral Jing doing nothing is kind of the antithesis of what war is all about in a lot of aspects. And I think that, yes, you'll see that maybe in, you know, more clever generals and the reason for Bumi's success and why Omashu is kind of thwarted off, I think, the the Fire Nation for so long. But it, again, it is this idea that these certain types of elements of these bending forms and just bending in general have been lost. And I love that you brought that up. That was such a great point. Both of you guys, those were incredibly profound. Uh, and again, it just it shows the potency of Bumi's lessons. Uh, throughout the series they're not meant there aren't many but the ones he does share have just such a great impact on ang <laughs> even if ang doesn't necessarily seem to understand it at first <laughs> because again earthbending is that polar opposite of airbending um so again boomy tells him your teacher will be someone who waits and listens and in true boomy fashion just <laughs> rolls himself away up the chute <laughs> with the boulder. <laughs> you know, just 
see ya. <laughs> and like, what a what a Back, hilarious like, the whole way too. And, and can you even imagine like the 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 like the Fire Nation guards who are just like, wait, how did Boomy get back up here? Oh, I'm gonna skip that because he has to seem like he's completely helpless. Yeah. So it's like, no, oh, they just dropped me off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and who imagines them putting him in like a Hannibal style mask now too? I since know, his right? face could apparently earthbend. It's like, all right, well, apparently we need to lock him down more. So imagine he probably ended up like, you know, the man in iron mask style, just like iron all over his face. Yes, learn how to metal bend. <laughs> uh, um so as, as the episode concludes um we see yeah, he, may he's absolutely amazing <laughs> yes uh we see may yeah. Tiley... the fun- wait did i just realize something do we see him do we see him break out of his coffin he, yeah we when, do uh, yeah is that late, later on in the series or am i yeah. just mistaken am I it's, it's in like well, the no, series he, finale when he like they ask him like how did you how did you escape? And like, he goes to that flashback sequence and he uses his, uses his face and like sends earthen pillars to like the coffin and it just breaks open. And then he just goes ham on the city. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So we, we see Tylee may and Azula leaving the city and we get this kind of like little character moment where, uh, you know, Azula is just like, we're also pursuing, uh, my uncle and Zuko. And Tylee is just like, it'll be interesting to see Zuko again, won't it, May? And May just kind of has this, like, little smirk and everything. And we're like, ooh, <laughs> like, what happened between those two? <laughs> All right. <laughs> so we're setting up. It's like, there's some there's some connections there. So we're kind of setting that up there. But then Azula just, it, it, she is unaffected by this and is just like, but now we have a third target, the Avatar. She doesn't actually even say that. And that, that just a testament to great writing. She's like, now we have a third avatar. Or sorry, a third target. <laughs> a third target. And it cuts to the scene with Aang. And it's just, she, again, they could have said the avatar. But instead, it's letting the editing speak for itself. And it's a trust in viewers. And I love it. I love it. <laughs> there are like other shows that like will still overly state things because they do not trust their viewers to be able to understand. And this is a kid show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's a very, it's a creative uh, decision and also just very mature. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and you, it, you don't even, it's not even like work to, to know what she means. It's like, Oh yeah. The avatar. And yeah. then it's that beautiful cut scene. Mm-hmm. And the final scene is a very heartwarming moment where Aang has returned to the city to bring back Tom Tom and he gently brings them back down and just watches as May's parents are like overwhelmed with like relief and joy to see him again. And Aang just Aang doesn't do it for the thanks. He just does it because he knows that it's right. And again, it's just, we see this constantly throughout the series of just these moments of this is who Aang is. And it's like why he is such a great choice for being the Avatar. It's like he has just such a love for humanity and an understanding that, you know, people are people. And these parents were heartbroken that their son was taken away from them. 
Um, and that's kind of the the final note. So with that, I just kind of want to wrap things up with final thoughts. Uh, now that we've kind of gone through all this discussion overall on this episode and new insights that you guys uh, take away from it. I was just thinking, I actually, going back to this episode, I, I almost think it's a stronger episode than the original uh, episode of Booming when we were introduced to him. I actually think it's a stronger episode on a writing level and also just on a, um, just, 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 it had, just had the first one had some twists. Like, again, we didn't know what to expect of Boomy at that point. We literally thought he was just insane. Um, we had a little more insight on him this time. And then also you have all these other great character arcs that are going on and it's all interwoven so beautifully with a great lesson and then a very just sort of sweet ending without any dialogue, except the fact that the parents are saying, oh, Tom, Tom, I'm so glad. You know, they're just glad to see him. So I just, I, I almost think um, just going back and, and, and revisiting it again and revising the whole series that it's, 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 I, 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 it's arguably a stronger episode than the first Omashi episode. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, that, I think that's such a testament to uh, Elizabeth Welch. Uh, he has, I mean, she is such a fantastic writer. I mean, she, she did uh, like a ton of episodes throughout this series. And honestly, she did some of the best episodes in this series. I mean, she wrote Zuko alone, uh, the storm, uh, just, to name a few, I think she also did Avatar and the Fire Lord. I mean, it's like she usually specializes in the flashback episodes, but I think she just has such a great way of weaving different stories together and then also just having great, you know, it's great representation through female characters. I mean, look, we had Katara having great moments, Ty Lee, May, Azula. It was just all fantastic. And again, it's what sets the show apart in such a powerful way and why it was so well received because it it had just great characters all across the board it wasn't just a lone male savior with like sidekicks and like minor female characters like no these are strong competent and incredible female characters in this show and hey they brought in like two more with this episode and reaffirmed how insane and awesome and crazy Azula is. <laughs> well, and, and, and Boomy's crazy. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. <laughs> so uh, what about uh, you, uh, for you, Kristen, for uh, final thoughts? I love how how good the continuity is with this, especially Boomy. While we only really get to experience him twice, minus the, the final siege of Bossing Say at the end of the series, um, each time we meet Boomy, we see continuity. And then it's not just the mad genius. You know, every time they visit Amashu, they have to do something resourceful. <laughs> they experience something crazy. And there, there is a lesson learned. And I hadn't really thought about it until the episode came up about him using neutral Jing. And we actually do see that. Um, when they very first meet him, Boomy knew exactly who they were. He waited. He waited patiently. He fed them. He, he t- chatted with them and was goofy. Um, and then he exposed Aang as the airbender. And then, you know, he had his tests. And, and, and you see that. And I hadn't really thought about it because 
when we when we get our first impression of him when he's battling Aang, he comes off he's he's quick, he's brash, he's going, he's striking at Aang. But in that moment, that doesn't reflect Boomy as a whole. You know, when you actually look at his character, the the whole concept of him using neutral Jing in his life makes perfect sense because he is often quiet and patient and listening, even though he seems uh, uh, very quick to to say something silly or do something crazy. Um, he is a very patient person, and it is kind of a shame. As much as I love Toph, it would have been cool to see boomy teach ang that would have been really fun in my opinion and i and i feel like something cool that maybe they might want to consider in the new series is is maybe uh even if he doesn't train ang maybe even having like some kind of cool like training session either post series or something because you gotta imagine he went back and saw boomy plenty in his lifetime it would be really cool to see like him go and like Boomy's like, show me what you've learned, and him just constantly <laughs> kicking Aang's butt no matter how good Aang gets. I would yes. really love to see that because Boomy is such an incredible individual, and I there isn't there is no such thing as too much Boomy. We need more Boomy in the series. Yes. He's so awesome. Wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I love that you found like that in that connection with like the previous episode too, because I think the idea of him saying these crazy, like weird, sometimes disconcerting things or whatever is he says them and then he waits for people's response and he listens. And I feel like he gets a sense of who people are based on how they respond to the crazy things that he says. And I mean, again, it's such a testament of him practicing that neutral jing and living that earthbending life to its fullest um but i i think that's going to wrap things up for this uh for this episode and i mean what this was again so much fun to revisit boomy is always a riot uh to be able to talk about and everything and uh just overall great stuff it's fun to revisit uh like an episode just kind of like point by point again i know we haven't done that specifically in a while we've kind of just been focusing on characters and uh different like themes and stuff like that so this this was this was a lot of fun um so again uh thank you chris and casey for uh co-hosting with this today um and again just uh Thank you all listeners for listening in. Um, I just really appreciate you guys uh, uh, being able to follow, uh, liking our stuff on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Um, and again, you can find us there on Twitter at Portalcast Pod, Instagram and Facebook at Legend of Portalcast. And you can find our website at uh, legendofportalcast.com. Um, remember, you can subscribe on iTunes. Um, and if you do, uh, consider leaving a rating and review again, super helpful in terms of, uh, getting our name out there and everything. Um, obviously we've got a big year of avatar ahead of us. Um, there's a lot more stuff we want to discuss. And, uh, if you have any ideas or reactions to what we talk about, we'd love to hear from you guys. Um, but for now and until next time, uh, let us leave. <laughs>